Welcome to the Speaking Podcast. You can find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. We're also on Bitchute and YouTube. You find the links in the podcast description. I'm also a podcasting coach because I've got four other podcasts. Before getting to the top half percent is the Learn Polish, the Meditation, the Crypto, and the Awakening, Exposing Fraud and Corruption. You'll find everything on bio.link forward slash podcaster. Today, my guest, ex-firefighter, therapist, mindset coach, and speaker, Please welcome Vin Infante. Thanks for having me, Roy. Appreciate it. No problem. So I suppose, I mean, I mentioned, you know, just brief little points, but you might introduce yourself to the listeners. Who's Vin? Sure. Well, Vin's anyone you want him to be now. <laughs> but I like to I like to think of myself as a guy on a mission to impact a billion lives positively. And I aim to do that through my aspects that I'm I'm currently working on, which is keynote speaking. I'm a mindset coach. I'm a therapist. I do some mentoring and I'm an entrepreneur. So, oh, and most importantly, and I think this is probably my favorite new title, so to speak, is that I am a dad. So that's the probably the coolest one because now I could create generational impact, right? So I get to leave a legacy for my daughter. And then if she does some cool stuff, I could be impacting people while I'm dead through her. So that's that's one of the cooler ways I'm looking at it, right? No, <laughs> so that's who I am in a nutshell. Okay. I'm just a guy that wants to help. So I suppose just touching on the speaking, like what's your kind of speaking journey from a young age? Is it something that, you know, you had to fight to improve or was it, were you the, were you the confident type from a, a child? Oh, no, man. I, I was a bullied kid. I grew up. I had no confidence. I uh, was actually diagnosed with depression, anxiety, panic disorder. I had all these these types of issues growing up because uh, I had it, I had it at least rough in my eyes. Right. I was that kid I was like pushed down the steps, pantsed in the schoolyard, thrown into trash cans. That, that was the good stuff. And so uh, the man that you're talking to today is just a completely built person from that because that was that was one hell of a journey. So I actually take it as as and I know a lot of people don't mean it this way. But when people tell me, oh, you're a natural speaker. Oh, it comes easy for you. I'm like, that's that is a goddamn insult if you know anything about me. <laughs> so it was a journey. <laughs> but it just shows because I mean, I kind of similar. I mean, I got a lot of bullying when I was younger as well. And I hated public speaking. And you know, it just shows that sometimes the things that hurt us make us stronger. And just you work on anything, you can make a change. Because I know there's some listeners and, you know, they're aspiring to get on stage and they're just terrified. So I suppose like with the mindset, mm. you might kind of touch on that because you've experienced it. You know where they're coming from. Sure. I, I think it's interesting, too, because I still get like a, a pre-speech jitter. Like right now on the podcast right this is so normal to me it doesn't even i could get on half asleep and still give a good show but when you're you're talking about now you're going to put me in front of 20 30 40 100 something people i i still get that little butterfly in my stomach where it's like ooh, this is happening and and i think there's two different ways to look at it right is one is is the fear that you're going to go up there and you're going to be judged and then the other is the understanding that it's a privilege to be up there and you kind of get that butterfly because you really want to deliver and you want to help these people that came to listen to you. So I would say I'm more of the latter where it's for me, it's it's like my heart's really in it. There's a lot that kind of goes into the speaking for me, because when I was younger and I was struggling with all of this stuff, I had a therapist, but I didn't find him very helpful. But what was very helpful was listening to speakers, because when you get to connect with people through their stories, through their experiences, it's a form of giving you hope. So for me, a lot of my desire to speak was to be able to do that for others, right? I struggled a lot with that depression, anxiety. And I also was in really dark places where I had a lot of suicidal thoughts and ideations. And I was very close to kind of that idea of, yeah, maybe I should just end it all. But when you listen to a speaker, one of the things that I believe they do or a good one could do is they breathe life into you. So I've kind of seen it almost as an obligation, right? I got through my hard times. I have to fulfill that for others. I have to come out. I have to pour my heart and soul into my speech. I have to breathe life into whoever's in that audience that needs it because you never know. You could be saving a life. Somebody saved my life through speaking. Maybe I could pass that forward and, and pay it back 
tenfold. I don't know, but that's always the goal. And so when I first started, I would, I would get pretty nervous. I would feel that angst. But the biggest reason a lot of people feel that angst is because they're more concerned about themselves. It's like, do I look stupid? Are people going to judge me up here? You know, are some, are some people going to listen to my story and, and say that's stupid or that's bullshit or like, what do you know? And blah, 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 whatever, whatever we want to tell ourselves. And so a lot of that angst comes from it's, it's a focus on us, which is actually very selfish, right? Like you're getting up there on a stage or you're getting up there to speak, to impact people and, and hopefully help, right? Create an impact. Why do you speak if not to create impact, right? So starting to take yourself out of the focus on you and instead of worrying about how you might be perceived, start considering it's really more important for me to give my message to someone that might need to hear it as opposed to you caring about what someone might think of you. Because I mean, at least for me, <laughs> if you've been judged your whole life, you have to get to a certain point where you just stop caring about what people think of you, right? Otherwise, you're going to be suffering. So carry that over. And I mean, still listen, easier said than done. But I feel the angst now when I'm about to do a speech because I'm more concerned with delivering than I am with people judging me. And so that actually drives me to be more energetic and be more on stage. Like right now, I'm pretty chill. Like you, this is, <laughs> this is toned down, but it's because I'm not, I'm not fired up in the room. I'm not there. There's not, or maybe there's a thousand people listening. I don't know. But when I could see the people, I'm like, oh, this is real. Like, this is go time. And I'm like, let's go. <laughs> so it's 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 interesting. And then one last piece that I'll say is create like a little ritual beforehand. I, I've come to see that a lot of great speakers have a little thing they do right before they go out, which calms their nerves. So, you know, maybe somebody somebody will like snap their fingers and spin around. I don't know why, but that's that's just the thing I've seen. And then they go out and they're boom, ready to go. Another person will listen to a song and get themselves in the right state. Uh, I actually have a little ritual that I kind of do before anything really big. There's this song I love. It's it's by Aloe Black. And it's the song is called I'm the Man. <laughs> and so I just play it and I just get in my head and I'm like, I'm the man, man. Like, let's go. And, and I'll jump out and then I'm ready. So I, I create a ritual that centers you. Get out of your head. Don't worry about the judgment. And be more concerned with delivering because you don't know whose life you might save. And you can't save someone's life. You can't help others. If you're more worried about what people think of you than delivering the message that you're supposed to give to others. Beautiful. Love it. I love it. And I mean, I've done hundreds of podcasts as well. And for me, you know, I, but I remember the first few. It used to be nerve wracking. <laughs> I even uh, I remembered uh, Clubhouse when that came on because it was a new medium. Yeah. The first few times I was on it, my voice went, I started to get nervous. And I was like, how come I can go on video, even do live shows and nobody <laughs> can see me on this? And I got nervous, but it's like, like the last time on stage, because I, I hadn't, uh, because of the craziness for the last couple of years, you know, I hadn't, uh, it's mainly Toastmasters. I had done a load of speaking in Toastmasters, but I spoke mm -hmm. at a uh, Mind Valley University and it was the first time in my life that I didn't get nervous first time in my life wow. yeah but i always yeah. you know it's always about the impact and getting you know make sure but i i have totally it's not about me and i don't know it's just a transition that happens that you go from the afraid that will i make a mistake to exactly what you say it's, it's more important about can you touch someone's life today that you know they're going to be a better person. And I even say that to other podcasters. And even if there's one person listening, would you still do the conversation if you knew they benefited from it? And of course you would. And when you're in the, you know, I mean, if you've got a thousand people sitting in front of you and, and you're using it's different energy, obviously, because you want them to of course, you know, connect with you. But it, it's such amazing feeling, especially the feedback that you get. Because I mean, obviously you get a lot of that as well, you know, afterwards or, you know, later on uh, further down the line. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've, I've done Toastmasters too. And that I, I think that's a great point you bring up. Anyone who's really looking to speak, practice, go to Toastmasters, pay the membership, join up, give a few speeches, let the jitters like it's, it's just one of those things because you're new. Let the jitters work themselves out. I remember my first speech, like I was shaking during the whole speech <laughs> and that's okay. You, you're going to do that because it's new. It's like anything new. And I think that's, what's so funny. Right. People think this is so different. It's like, oh, I'm I'm scared. Why 
all right, when's another time you were scared? Oh, when I tried to start my business or when I started my new job or when I asked that guy or girl out for the first time or when we had our first date. You're always nervous when you start. Why would speaking be different? <laughs> no, exactly. And a lot of people, they, they, like they, they don't do as much practice. Like there's even people, say in Pakistan, they're, they're trying to, there's a guy called uh, Rohan Alawala. He's basically trying to help people uh, get on, uh, get interview people that they can earn up to a thousand dollars a month, which is good money there. And like, so if you want to start, there's people that are, will put you on a live show on StreamYard and you can just practice. I mean, sometimes they might have, you know, 20 listeners or whatever. There's others that love, you know, a thousand plus, but it it's just a case of practice. And as you mentioned, like the Toastmaster, like my very first one, because you'll get stories out of Toastmasters as well. My very first speech, I paused halfway through it. Like I just panicked and I just, it, it seemed like two minutes to me. And I was afraid to look at the recording afterwards, but it wasn't two minutes, but it felt like that. And I ended up using that speech in a competition that I got into the final of five countries, <laughs> you know, because I got two different feedbacks. There was existing Toastmasters and brand new people. The brand new people basically abused me and said all horrible things. And the existing Toastmasters was all positive comments. And I didn't let it get to me because sometimes, and it's just, I suppose, people to be aware as well. Sometimes most people in Toastmasters, they're there to help and to support, but there's other, there's the odd time that the, something can happen that you mightn't get the, the proper feedback, but never take it personally. I mean, at the end of the day, it's just trying to imp make you improve. Yeah, I agree. I, I found, I found that Toastmasters was great to start out. I think there's, there's definitely other ways to kind of go about building up your speaking career. I, I also, I, I agree with that. I think a lot of people get caught up in criticism, which is like, it's important. I found that actually Toastmasters didn't give enough. You know, they, they were very concerned with their, they call it the feedback sandwich, which is like two good things. And one thing you can improve. I was like, how about you just give me a, a shit sandwich? Give me five <laughs> things I can improve. I don't care about good things. I don't need good things. I need to know how I can become the best speaker because I'm on a mission. Don't give me, well, it was, I don't care if it was phenomenal. Tell me everything. And one time somebody gave me a really, they were like, how, how, how strong of a review? I was like, tear me apart. So the guy gave me this review and it was, it was the best review I ever got. And then the people from Toastmasters kind of like reprimanded him. I was a little disappointed by that. They were like, you know, you really came down hard on him. He was like, he asked for that. And they're like, yeah, but we we have a structure here of like really like good feedback and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, guys, relax. Like this is actual helpful criticism. And it was so interesting to me, man. I was like, this is weird. <laughs> I, I remember because with the, the evaluation, so those that aren't familiar with Toastmasters is basically when somebody goes up and speak, you know, the person has about three minutes to do an evaluation of it. I waited about six months before I did that because I was so nervous. I thought it was, and then I got like, I would do that. I'd pick up on things. People's feet were twisted certain way, but I would give them everything that would help them. And people used to be asking me constantly to be their evaluator because they knew they would become yeah. better speakers because I was just, it wasn't that I would always give positive points as well. I was never that they felt bad afterwards, but I think most people kind of prefer that, but yet the system, yeah, it's like the sandwich. I've heard that as well. And, and, and it's similar things as well with the stage presence. I mean, sometimes people go, when you're telling the story, you stand on the left when you're on this part, when you're in the middle and when the path, and it's just so obvious, it just looks corny. And sometimes, you know, you kind of have to step out of that. And I don't know about you, but like I used to read kind of TEDx books, look at TEDx, even when I go to events, I'm constantly sitting down, watching how the person is, like I've seen people come off the stage and they're like, oh, they don't realize people are looking at them. You know that they they think it's like they've stepped off the stage and you can just see the relief. It's like their soul has just left their body. And, you know, so I've even told people that, like I said, listen, just remember everyone is watching you, especially if you've inspired them. And when they see that, then they kind of get a different feeling. So, you, you know, you can constantly yeah. learn from different speakers on the stage. I agree. And, and I think there's, there's different levels, right? I think for anyone who's really curious about getting into speaking, Toastmasters is a good entry point. I wound up dropping out eventually because my way of speaking, I'm a little bit more wild unorthodox and I have a tendency to curse a little bit. Toastmasters did not appreciate that. 
they were like, you know, you can't do this. You can't do that. I was like, then fuck it. I'm out. <laughs> I was like, I'm not, <laughs> I was like, I'm not, I'm not toning myself down because I am not a, I'm going to present this way. Like I, I actually got up. I remember my first speech. They loved it. Don't get me wrong, but they had so many, like, you can't do this. You can't say that you got to remember these are the rules and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't have to do none of that. I was like, that's not how I'm going to speak one day. I was like, that's not my thing. But I got up. I was like, come on, what's up with this room? You guys are quiet as hell. Let's go. Give some noise. Break it. Like, <laughs> I was like yelling at people. I was like, this is terrible. And they're like, this is how we do it, Vin. And I'm like, well, I don't like this then. This is not how I do it. And so I, I definitely recommend it's a great starting space. But once you really figure out who you are as a speaker, you might find it's not as much for you. Or it might be even more for you, depending on the realm that you want to be in. I look at myself as I have a lot of good points. Don't get me wrong. I can be educational, but I look at myself also as very motivational. Like I want to get out there and be like, come on, like everybody rev it up, you know? And, and don't get me wrong. I don't want it to just be a rah, rah speech. Right. But I want people to feel energy. I want there to be excitement. And, and, and there's a lot of actually interesting research that backs when your emotions are heightened, right. And you are learning, right? Emotional intensity with learning actually creates a bit a better sticking point. You're more likely to retain the information I'm about to give you if I kind of like rah-rah you up a little bit. And so I know that scientifically it's proven. So why would I come out and just be like, hello, good evening, everyone. We're about to learn about the subconscious mind. I'm going to like, that's not me. Not only is that not me, that's bullshit. I know you're not going to get anything out of it. So once people develop their style, I think it's super important to figure out what path you want to be on. Where do you want to put yourself? Who do you want to surround yourself with? My first ever speech was actually hosted on a virtual summit hosted by Les Brown. I took a speaking course that he offered. And then I was one of, of 20 people out of a class of 900 that was selected to be hosted on his virtual summit. And it was wild. I was scared as hell. It was streamed through all his platforms. The man has like 9 million followers. <laughs> oh, brilliant. And I mean, he's he's very energetic. I mean, he's well, you know, he's international. I mean, I think most people have heard of uh, Les Brown. So, so with, with kind of the virtual world then kind of, because, yeah, I, I suppose a lot of the things closed down in the last few years. Thankfully, they're opening up again. Mm -hmm. But like, what have you kind of learned? And some are kind of hybrid. So what kind of tips and tricks could you give people regarding the virtual world? Oof. Virtual. Okay. First off, virtual is like a cheat code. It's not even fair. I was being streamed across like seven platforms to, I don't even know how many people could have been, you know, again, he had like, he has like nine to 10 million people reach could have been thousands. I had no freaking clue. So one, it's way too easy to do virtual. <laughs> you choose virtual, you should have no butterflies because you can't see anyone. You're just looking at yourself. <laughs> virtual tips though. Uh, you know, obviously right now we're on the podcast. So I'm a little more casual, a little more relaxed. But when I'm giving a speech virtually, you always look into the eye of the camera, like a hundred percent of the time. That eye is your connection to the audience. So if you're not looking at the eye, you're going to be losing people. Because now you're not speaking to them. You're kind of speaking in general at them. And that was one of the bigger realizations that I had. Uh, two, you could change your whole energy by standing, giving a speech. I, If I'm giving a virtual speech, I'm never sitting. I'm sitting now, again, casual, chilling on a podcast. If I'm speaking, I'm standing. Because your energy will be different and the audience will feel it differently. And honestly, you have to work a little harder. Because if you're virtual, you have to work harder than in person, right? Because in person, people are there, they're energized, they might have paid to be there, or even if it was a free event, they still had to show up. So you, you got to think about it, right? When you're online, people are distracted, they got their phones, maybe their kid, their spouse, their girlfriend, boyfriend, friends over, maybe they forgot, and they were like, Oh, let me jump on this event. Maybe they're on the event during work, you have to work extra hard to captivate people. So anything you could do is really important. Another trick I used to use is I used to take my phone, and I used to lean it up against my computer screen with a timer. That, oh my God, that's such a cheat code. You can't do that in person but on your on your screen. Come on, that was so easy. They'd be like, Vin, you have an eight minute time slot. Okay. And like just slap my phone right there. And I, I just see the timer going down. So I think that's one really great thing for pacing yourself. And uh, I, I think that's probably like my three big pieces of advice that 
drastically helped me with my virtual speaking. Brilliant, brilliant. So I'd like to kind of touch on the mindset because, you know, mindset coach and everything. And especially based on kind of, you know, your younger days and what you went through. So I think when something like that happens, it's it's so much better to actually deal with people that suffer from anxiety or depression. So you might kind of touch on that, because especially, you know, with this COVID, so many people, you know, they took it on board and there's internal fighting in the house and everything. So I I suppose what kind of things could you tell them that would might help them? Sure. So I think first, and this is, this is what I always like to kind of go back to. So if anyone listens to me, on any other podcast you're going to get bored of me because i say the same shit all the time because it's important but the reality is this before you even ask how the heck do you deal with it you have to ask why is it there in the first place this is one of society's main problems nobody even understands the function of depression or anxiety society has kind of conditioned us especially in western society they've kind of conditioned it like this is normal you just you have a chemical imbalance you experience these things you could take medication to help with it. You got to be in therapy for 10 years to manage it and it never goes away. I've come to believe that's bullshit because of two things. One, I no longer deal with depression, anxiety, or panic attacks. I haven't had a panic attack in almost 10 years. I don't have anxiety. I don't have depression. And when I say I don't have these things, what I mean is it's not persistent, right? Because everybody still gets depressed sometimes, myself included. Everyone still gets anxious at times, myself included. But here's the kicker. I don't care about that. Why? Because I know that these things are there for a reason. If you look into the history of how these things served our ancestors, for instance, anxiety was built, fight, flight, or freeze. That's the main system, three functions that come from anxiety, because we're perceiving a threat. What what that's also known as is the survival state. When we're in survival state, we're tunnel visioned, we're super focused on the threat in front of us, we can't see anything, and we're constantly in this heightened state of arousal because we are prepared to fight for our lives, run away as quickly as possible, or even in the moment, just freeze because we have, we're paralyzed, we don't even know what to do. Our senses went so crazy, we actually just got stuck for a moment, like, like a system overload if you, if you were to see a computer freeze, right? So these are the three main functions, and we go in the survival mode. Society doesn't really explain that, right? They're just like, oh, you're anxious. But what is it? And so when we look at that and we understand that aspect, then we could start saying, okay, so you're anxious because there's something that you're being, you're perceiving as a threat. And you might not even be fully aware of it. This might be more subconscious than anything. So now we got to like look into what's your belief systems about life, right? How do you view things? How do you describe things? What do you believe about the world? What do you believe about your circumstance? How are you programming yourself? I don't think it's normal. And and obviously we know it's not normal. That's why we say, you know, people get, get help if you have anxiety, but it's not normal to struggle with constant anxiety. That means you are constantly in a state of fear or fight or flight. That's not, that's not good, right? So nowadays, fight or flight is activated in many different ways. For our ancestors, running from a saber-toothed tiger. <laughs> Today, you can't pay your rent. Tomorrow, cost of living's too high. The next day, your girlfriend might leave you because there's 10 guys in her Instagram DMs. Who knows? Whatever it is, you're perceiving all these threats day after day after day, and you're not finding resolution. You're not even aware that these things are quote unquote threats to your livelihood. So when you're living in a state of anxiety, it's because you don't understand what you're perceiving as a threat. And that's 100% of the time true. Okay. And then the other piece of depression, I'm going to give people a little education on this as well, is you can look this up. It's a cool study. It's called analytical rumination hypothesis, analytical rumination hypothesis or ARH, right? ARH was designed again for our ancestors to help them figure out interpersonal issues that might arise throughout their lifetime. So ARH is the challenge to make you go internally and say, what's wrong in my life that needs to change? And very interestingly, again, if you notice with depression, what does it do? Your energy is low, you're forced inwards, you isolate, you don't think about others, and you just continue to focus on you. Because you are supposed to analyze and ruminate so you can figure out the solution to the problem you are persistently experiencing. One of the biggest things is that people don't get honest with themselves. Like you're in a terrible relationship, your girlfriend sucks, She's talking to other guys. She's disrespecting you. She's she's not listening to you. She's not spending time with you. 
and you're staying in the relationship. Of course you're depressed. <laughs> you need to figure out that the answer is you should not be in that relationship. But the longer you deny that answer, the longer you take to analyze and ruminate, the longer you're going to feel depressed. Depression is a persistent problem that you have yet to come to the conclusion of. So when you asked those questions of me a few moments ago, I needed to give this backstory because if people don't understand why they're there, they can't understand how to fix it. You see, when I work with people, they actually get transformation because I don't just sit there and validate their anxiety and depression. I teach them because without learning something new, you're going to do the same thing you always did. So if people want to start overcoming their anxiety, they have to figure out what they're so afraid of, what they perceive as threats, and they need to shift their focus and learn to gain more control over their life through self-mastery. And then if you want to start overcoming depression, you have to start taking really deep, honest looks at your life and being like, what is the problem? I could either fix or I could look at differently, right? Because that's pretty much the only two things with, with problems. You can't really do much aside from that. You could either fix the problem or you could look at the problem differently. And what I mean by that is like if, you know, I, and this is just a really extreme example, right? But if you're if you're stuck in a home and your parents are yelling at you all the time, and that's that's a major problem, you can't necessarily fix it because you're kind of stuck at home. Maybe you're 16 and you're listening to this and that's a problem you're experiencing, but you can change the way you look at it. Like for instance, they're not yelling at you and, and treating you terribly because you're their son. They're yelling at you and they're treating you terribly because they have unhealed wounds and they don't know how to be better themselves. And so now you're kind of start changing the narrative, changing the story, which changes the emotion, which in turn is actually fixing that problem. So there's multiple ways to go about it, right? So this is this is the long-winded answer to your no, question. It's an <laughs> no, it's fantastic. And I suppose going a bit deeper for something, especially because I know that you, you were previously a firefighter and I know I, like you witness an awful lot of people don't probably realize that they think, oh, you know, the firefighter, great job. But that is a difficult job because the things that you witness, but sometimes people witness uh maybe an accident they, they they see something or a suicide or something like that and it traumatizes them and like because mm. unfortunately it's it's a fact of life and majority of people sometime if their life would see something like that in in a situation like that if it's kind of just your brain is triggering what you've witnessed is there ways that you would uh kind of deal with that what's the best way of dealing with that you know it's so interesting right so trauma 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 is interesting they found like research that shows you can actually work out trauma with physical exercise how crazy is that because a lot of people don't understand all trauma is is an intense emotional engagement that gets paired with a physiological response right so we use soldiers you know you hear the a firework goes off and the guy jumps under the table what does that mean? Well, he was freaking scared. There was bombs going off when he was at war. And his response to that intense emotional engagement was to jump under the table. Did that enough times, became a pattern, became a habit. We call that a trauma response. Trauma, but trauma is just heightened emotion, right? So it, the trauma gets stored in the body in a certain way that we're physiologically embodying it. So one, it's it's about understanding how do you how do you pattern it? How do you continue to trigger it? Because you're actually the one triggering it. There's stress responses, sure, right? Like you'll see something or whatever, and and those are those are responses because they're good reminders to that intense emotional engagement. But you're the one that's triggering it, and and it it's usually on a more subconscious level, right? Like most people aren't conscious; they're not like sitting there being like. I would like to trigger my trauma response and jump under a table right now. I don't think I've ever heard anyone actually consciously say that, but I could say it's subconscious for sure. So when we're trying to work out trauma, what you want to do is you want to one, gain a really deep understanding of like, what was that intense emotional engagement? Number two, so there's this really, really powerful method. It's called uh, EMDR. And I, I got to be honest, I can't freaking remember what the EMDR stands for because <laughs> there's something long it's like it's it's eye eye movement desensitization something i i really can't remember that but it's it's really great it's really it's really interesting they found that when you're talking about trauma 
And the whole the whole way this came about was like this woman was just walking in a field and she was uh, she was talking about about trauma and she was looking in a certain way and it felt different. And so when you're looking with the EMDR, there's the technique of you're looking side to side as you're talking about your trauma. And it actually allows you to discuss your trauma, your traumatic situation and process that without the emotional intensity coming up. How crazy, how crazy is the human body, right? And so a lot of the ways that EMDR is, is cutting edge is because of the fact that it separates the experience from the emotional response. And that's actually most ways, if not the way people create transformation in their life. If you want to start, and, and we kind of touched on this with anxiety and depression, right? If you want to start working those two out, you have to be able to understand it differently. You have to be able to not react to it, get to a proper answer. What did I just describe with EMDR? You have to be able to talk about the trauma, traumatic situation that had a high emotional intensity, trauma response without experiencing the trauma again, but still being able to process the situation. And so EMDR is one really cool way to do that. Uh, there's another way to do it too, is like, and this is a little bit harder, is getting to the space where you switch the meaning. Because meanings are what create emotions. I, I like to explain to people, feelings aren't facts. They're just indicators, right? Your feelings are not factual. They never will be. However, there are they are indicators of how you've perceived the situation, the belief systems you have about it, how you are kind of creating your perception of the world which is all based on the internal, right? We don't see the world as it is. We see it as we are. So as you start kind of really shifting, hey, did you consider maybe the story wasn't actually this? Like, it doesn't have to mean this. What if it meant this? If it meant this, how might you feel about it? And then we could start kind of getting you to the space where it's like, well, if it didn't mean this, because this is causing me anxiety, and it meant this, this might actually make me feel good about it. Okay, so let's run with that. If we could believe that. What would that feel like? How would you feel? What would you have to think for that to be a reality? And so you start really just rewiring and reprogramming the brain because that's what it is. If you've heard this term before, it's neurons that fire together, wire together. It's like a very common saying that a lot of people use, especially these speakers, because it's true. It's basic neurology. When you do something, a neuron fires. When you have a response, a neuron fires. When an emotion goes off, a neuron fires. Everything that happens in your body, be it physically, mentally, emotionally, it doesn't matter. They're all neurons firing. So the more neurons you fire together, like if you have a trauma response and you get your physio uh, physiological self involved and like you do something with your body and then you have an emotional response and then you have a thought process and then you see something and then you smell something and then you hear something. Now, oh my God, like, can you believe that? That's like eight, nine different neurological responses going off at once and they're all firing at the same time and they're all wiring together that is going to be a strong response but if like you just saw something and paid it no mind that response wouldn't even stick like that's just one thing stimulated and it's going to be out of your mind soon so the more intense a response what we're really saying is you have more neurons and more things going on at once that are all wired together and now you have to like start ripping the wires apart to try and get that unjammed and create a new response fascinating fascinating and just like which people getting a therapist because you know all the different things you said there have been incredible I know that there's kind of therapists that have a patient for life, which they yeah. kind of just get them to sit down, talk, and they're just happy that they're getting their kind of weekly check or whatever. For those that need to actually physically meet people, what advice would you to pick the right guy? And the other thing to kind of follow up on that is, is it possible to kind of do it online that, and can you get the same benefits? Do you actually have to be physically with a person? What's the difference in benefits from that? I don't think you have to, I'm, I'm going to go backwards on this answer. <laughs> I don't think you have to be in person. I have clients all over the world, literally all over the world, like clients in Thailand, clients in Australia, clients in all different states in the US. I think my smallest clientele is actually in my city of New York. I think I have only like two people here and the rest of my clientele is like everywhere else, which is great and funny. So there's, I don't believe there's any, any problem with that. Uh, we get, we get great results with my clients everywhere else. 
I believe it comes down to the knowledge you have and how you utilize it to help people. So I obviously do things very differently than your traditional therapist. I left traditional therapy. So like even people ask me to this day, they'll be like, hey, because you're a therapist, can we go through insurance? I'm like, no, because we don't do therapy. Well, what is it? It's a hybrid service. Nobody else does it. I'm the only one, right? Like, <laughs> don't try and put it through your insurance. They won't take it uh, because I'm, because <clears throat> I'm also very clear on it. I'm like, this isn't traditional therapy because if it was, I'd have to follow all sorts of stupid guidelines, which I don't believe in. So that's another part of it. Um, so I hope that answers that question. I don't believe you need to be in person. I don't think it really matters. I think what matters is the connection you have with your client and what you know as a practitioner. Number two, yes, I've seen modern day therapy as a as a business model. That goddamn, it's one of the best ones, right? The people are bought in. It's like, hey, you know therapy, you know how it goes, right? 10 to 15 years. You just stay there. And and you can never get rid of your anxiety. You just learn to manage it. Wow, sure. Let's keep going and giving the therapist a paycheck every week. Oh, wait, you're very anxious. You know what you need in addition to your therapist? Medication. Let's send you to a psychologist too. And we're going to pay them as well. And you're going to go once a month and you're going to do your medication management. And then you're going to go to your therapist once a week and you're going to do your talk therapy and you're going to just sit there and you're going to just keep talking about the same problem for 15 years because that's how you manage it. You can't ever get rid of it. You just manage it for 15 to 20 years. Why not? Hey, until the day you die, keep going. Like I've seen that. I'm like, this is bullshit, right? There's no other service. Roy, answer this question for me. I'm going to ask you a question. I know it's your podcast, but I got a question for you. What service or product would you pay for for 20 years with no results? Please tell me. Other than therapy, please tell me what what is what is the product you would gladly pay for for 20 years with no result? None. None. Fascinating, isn't it? Every other product or service in the world, we would stop after the first week of seeing nothing. But therapy were bought in for 20 years. Now, don't get me wrong. I do believe you can always grow. If you're with a therapist for 20 years, cool. It's only cool if you're actually making progress though, right? If you're still managing the same thing for 15 years, you need a new therapist. That guy sucks or you suck. You got to figure out which one sucks or maybe it's both of you. I don't know. But what I do know is you don't need to be in therapy for 20 years. It's just, it's not a thing. I believe it's people are too bought into this being a business and, and it's under the guise of, no, it's not. That's not a business model. It's, I mean, it's just the process. No, let's call it a business model. A damn good one too, right? Like, damn, you, you go out, you get 30 clients and you convince them that you they need to be with you for 20 years. Oh my God, that's sick, right? You never have to spend on marketing. <laughs> you got people that are going to be loyal. You get consistent paychecks. What do and you And you get to more? kick this back for the medication that's prescribed. Sure. Oh my my God, if you're a psychologist and you're prescribing medication, I'm not even going to tell you what those guys charge because it's unfair. It's unfair for 15 minutes. It's ridiculous. 15 minutes to ask you, how do you feel? Oh, you're tired? Sure. Let me just give you a little bit less. And now I'm going to bill your insurance company and you could go and I'll see you next month. That guy will live on that one appointment. Let me tell you. So here's here's the big reality is that I believe there's a better way to do it because I know there's people out there that do it better. I left traditional psychotherapy because I started studying stuff that Tony Robbins was doing. And whether people like to, I, I've met a lot of people that don't like Tony Robbins, which fascinates me because it's, it's one of those things, like despite how you feel, the man has legitimately helped people who were in therapy for 15 years with no resolution and transformed their life in 20 minutes. 20 minutes is documented. You could go watch the videos. You could go watch the follow-up of the videos where the people are like, yeah, I have no more like traumatic responses. I have no more phobia. So why are we bought in that the process is 20 years? Why are we bought in that it just, you have to manage it and live with it for the rest of your life? I see that and I say, that's not true. The reality is there's a lot of incapable people out there. And that's what I've come to learn. So I believe that we can get results quicker. I've seen it myself. I've seen it through my clients. I've seen it through me. I've seen it through other people doing it. And so I do not believe that this has to be a lifelong process. And uh, I believe that it really comes down to the capabilities of, of both of you. I think the last thing 
I, I don't know if I fully answered all your questions, but the last thing I will say is that there has to be a proper connection. One, I've come to understand I cannot actually change people. I thought that at 23 when I became a therapist, I was like, this is cool. I'm going to go change the world. I'm going to take people. And I'm going to like rearrange their minds and their hearts. And like, I'm going to fix them. But one, nobody's broken. Nobody needs fixing. People just have problems they're trying to figure out. That's all, right? Let, let's take away, oh, I'm broken. That's bullshit. Nobody's broken. Number two, you have to be willing. You have to want it because nobody could want it worse than you, right? If I want it and you don't, waste my time. Waste your time too. In fact, waste your money. Don't even pay me. I think it's silly. And so I make that very clear. If you're not in a space where you're ready to change, please save us both the time and save your money. Come back when you're ready. And lastly, as a, as a facilitator, as a coach, as a therapist, as a mentor, whoever you're showing up as, even a speaker, right? There are people that get transformed from speeches. I was one of them. Even as a speaker, you have to remember, you do not create change. You facilitate a space where change and transformation can take place. But you are not the change. You are the facilitator of the space for people to do it themselves. You create the room. You let them step in. You let them rearrange the room however they like. And you just sit there and you observe and you can maybe point a few things out. But you are not a change maker. You are a facilitator. And when people really step into that and understand that, you could see your power as a therapist or a coach or a mentor or a speaker. Because now, again, the emphasis is off of you. How bold and arrogant must you be to believe you are the reason this person changed? I was bold and arrogant at 23. I am not anymore at my I'm still not that old, but I am not now at my older years where I know I don't change anyone. I can't. I can only facilitate a space where if you want it bad enough, we can achieve it together as a team. And that's that's my take on it. Excellent. And you've been uh, featured on Forbes, uh, New York Weekly, Entrepreneur. There's a few others as well. So is that something that they just get picked up on or do you use a PR agency and your experience with that as well, just for those one that aspire and two that get the chance to it, have your tips for them? Yeah, it's a little of both. I, I definitely recommend good PR agencies because here, here's one of the biggest things, right? Is nobody knows they want you until they know that they want you. <laughs> right. And so I had with with PR, it's it's interesting, right? Because a lot of people think if you if you pay a PR team, it's cheating, right? But here's the funny fact: PR doesn't guarantee you features. It really doesn't. When my PR team pitched Forbes, right now, uh, I I spoke to this guy. This was actually this made me feel really cool about my Forbes feature. So Forbes gets like hundreds of coaches that pitch to them. Right. And they reject like three. The guy that interviewed me told me they reject three to 400 coaches a month because it's like there's no substance. They just, you know, of course, if you get featured in Forbes, it's a big deal. And so everybody wants it, but there's nothing there. So he said that when my PR company pitched me, he actually really liked my story. He liked my background and he liked what I was doing. Really cool enough, too, is he has a side D, which means he's a doctor of psychology. So he was like, wow, this is really interesting. This guy's created this hybrid service. It's unique. It's different. He's a, he was a firefighter. Like he's, he's got this backstory. Like I want to interview this guy. So he actually chose me. Right. And I think that's a common misconception where people think, oh, if you pay for PR automatically, it is not true. You do not automatically get on. So you have to actually have something worth sharing and don't get me wrong. It took me years to figure out what I'm trying to do. I started in mental health at 18, right? I'm 31 now. And I have been on this trajectory. I'm going to go, I'm going to be 32 this year, but I started on this trajectory since I was 18. And then I had to build my own business, right? My own coaching practice. And then I had to figure out how's this going to be unique, different, more helpful. What do I need to learn? What do I need to share? Who do I need to help? How do I need to teach it? Like there's a lot that goes into that. And then when you actually have something worth sharing, then you start getting PR. And then from there, I started getting some people reach out to me. I actually, um, I had a, a publishing company reach out to me and they were like, Hey, I, I love this, this article that you were featured in, you know, uh, have you thought about writing a book? We would love to potentially pick it up. I was like, maybe we'll see, we're, we'll talk about it. Right. So I think investing in your PR, once you have a message worthy of delivering, because bad PR is bad PR. You might, you might have people that'll take you 
and and could try and get you featured in places. But if you have nothing worth saying, your PR won't do anything for you, right? So really get clear on your message. Get clear on what you're doing, how you're helping, how you're unique, how you're different, how you do it, right? Uh, and then the, I would say there's there's also a very natural component too, is like you have to embody it. You have to show it. You have to have created some form of results in your own life. I believe that. I don't believe in the fake until you make it. And I hate that saying, those who can't do teach. How do you teach if you haven't done? If you haven't overcome your issues and you're teaching people how to overcome theirs, that makes no sense. You know why? Because when they come up to the roadblock that you've come up on, you can't give them any damn advice. The help ends there. You might have capability to get them to your roadblock, but you will never get them past it. And so I believe if you want to get yourself out there more, you have to actually have you have to actually have done some sort of work and then have something worth sharing. Excellent. More fantastic advice. I <laughs> just finally been because I always like to talk about kind of the social media because it's like a minefield. I see that uh, you're big on Instagram and also TikTok. You're, so you might watch your kind of go to for social media, but do you do separate ones as well as like the mind coach and the speaker or is everything you, the person? Yeah. I mean, well, you got to remember, right. When you're doing like what I'm doing as a, as a coach or, or a speaker, you are the brand. So it needs to be super consistent, right? Like I might have different messages like on TikTok. Sometimes I'll post stupid stuff. Cause I know TikTok likes some of that. And like, I'll hop on a trend where I'll just do like a stupid thing, but I would say through and through, I want to be conveyed a certain way. And when you are consistent enough, when you do it long enough, when you show people over and over, like you gotta, you gotta realize too, a lot of these guys that are known as experts, if you ever really look at their content, like really look at it. And, and if you have a few hours in a day, go ahead and binge, right? You'll notice they just say the same damn thing for a few years until eventually it hits and people are like, oh, this makes sense. Oh, this guy's been saying it for a while. Oh, he knows like what he's Robert talking about. Robert Kiyosaki for so long. on the Rich Dad Poor like Dad. He's been, <laughs> Robert Kiyosaki said the same things for about 40 years, like, and he's still making yeah. money from it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, look at Tony Robbins. He was, he was a multimillionaire at like 22. He started at 19. The guy's in his 60s. He still teaches the same thing. There's nothing like he might he might come up with some new research, which I appreciate with Tony Robbins is that he's always learning like he will have his he has a whole team that does research and they'll bring in the new stats and the new this and the new that. Right. But if you go to an event, his events teach the same damn thing they've been teaching since he was 19 years old. <laughs> and the reason is, is because when you find what works, you just keep putting it out there. Don't think you have to deliver a thousand different subjects. Don't think you have to talk on a hundred different topics. You don't always have to be new, fresh, and interesting. Maybe some new stats that could support what you say, but the stuff you say should be consistent because that's how you build a brand and identity. You become known as that guy. Like I am still in the process, right? Like I'm not a giant person yet. Like one day, Roy, you'll look back. You'll be like, damn, I knew Vin before he had millions of followers and was on the stages of 500,000 people, right? But- until I get there, I'm still working on building that brand identity as like Vin's the the mindset coach therapist that's created this unique hybrid service. And like, that's what I'm going to be known for. And I stick very consistent to that. And I don't need to be known for a million things because you don't get really good doing a million things, right? You might've heard the saying, a, a master is someone who puts in 10,000 hours into one thing, right? And it was funny. I was having a conversation the other day where somebody made a comment about my age. He's like, oh, you know, you're 32. It's like, not that, that or 31. That's not that that's a bad thing. He's like, you're just a bit young. I was like, that's fine. I was like, you know, Tony Robbins was changing people's lives at like 19, right? I said, because here's the thing. That's saying it takes 10,000 hours to become a master, right? There's no, there's no subtext in there that says it takes 10,000 hours in 30 years. It just takes 10,000 hours. So if I do my 10,000 hours by 21 and you do it by 45, I'm still probably more qualified than you because the reality is that I did it quicker, which means I'm actually going to have more time to surpass you. You're actually at the disadvantage having 30 years and 10,000 hours. I'm at the advantage being 30 and having over 10,000 hours, right? So I like to also put that in. It's not about your age. If people are judging you by your age, Chances are you haven't said anything of value yet. 
because some of my clients are literally double my age. It doesn't like people don't look at me anymore and go, oh, that guy's too young. They did when I was 20. That's fair. When I was like 23 and I just started, people like this guy doesn't know shit. I agree with them. I did not. <laughs> but at this point, I've been in it for over 13 years. I am dedicated to this. I'm still learning every day. I've spent hundreds of thousands of dollars investing in my own self-education, my own coaches, my own mentors. Like most people that are in their 60s do not have the information I have. My dad is 71 years old. He's a therapist. He's he, he's the reason I became a therapist. And he's impressed with the things I say because he's never heard them before. Like invest. <laughs> Definitely. Listen, Vin, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. You might let people know how they can get in contact with you. Sure. If you didn't find me too egotistical, please look me up. <laughs> please look me up. Uh, you can find me on Instagram at vin.infante. You can go to my website, www.vincentinfante.life. Uh, you can find me TikTok. Uh, LinkedIn is pretty cool. I do stuff on there, sort of. Uh, Twitter, I just started tweeting because apparently it's the in thing now. So I'm pretty much everywhere. And there's a free resource on my website that anyone who goes to can look at. It's my take on a vision board. A lot of the things I do in life is I like to see things that are there, say that it's shit, and then give people a better way to do that. So I did that with a vision board. So it's a free, re <laughs> free resource. You go check it out on my website. It's on the resources tab. Claim your, it's called the mission board. Claim your mission board. And uh, if you need any help with that, you can DM me anytime on Instagram or any of my socials. I always answer. Excellent. Thank you very much, Finn. Thanks, Roy. No problem. So that's all for the Speaking Podcast. You'll find all our episodes on speakingpodcast.com. As mentioned, we're on BitChute and YouTube. You'll find everything else about my other four podcasts and the coaching, bio.link forward slash podcaster. Be sure to give us a thumbs up, five-star rating, share with your friends, especially this episode. A lot of golden nuggets. Until next week, take care.